0: So we've been in a sermon series the past couple weeks, and um, it's also the season of Lent, and we've been doing, a handful of us have been doing morning vespers in the morning and reading through the book of Ecclesiastes. And the famous passage that we all know from Ecclesiastes is that there's a time to do this and a time to do that. And one of those times is that there's a time to hate and a time to love. So we're looking at the, the, the hate of God during the sermon series over the next couple of weeks. And this spawns from Proverbs 6, 16 to 19, that says that there are six things that the Lord hates and seven that are detestable to him. And and hate, at least in the Hebraic language, is a root word. It's a primary word, meaning that it's not built off of anything else. It goes to the very foundation of the language, that things are built off of hate uh, linguistically rather than hate being the start uh, or finding its start in some other word. And the word hate means that I wish to have no contact or relationship with, that thing that I hate. It means to separate or to keep distance. And we want to be careful when we use the word hate because on one hand, as we're looking through these things, we want to keep uh, ourselves distance from having proud eyes or a lying tongue or hands that do evil. But then on the other sense, we want to make sure that we're not separating ourselves so much that we never um, are in realms that these things are around. And I mean that from a maturity standpoint, because Jesus, when Jesus came, he wasn't just like completely separated from all of the sin and all of the people. He was around people all the time that had haughty eyes and that had lying tongues. And he was definitely around people that were about to shed innocent blood. And so as we think about God's hate, there are these things internally for our souls that we want to distance ourselves from. But also we don't want to make it some kind of strict moral judgment that um, we, we never are around somebody because Jim Gosherd is a good-looking guy and he's arrogant in his own eyes and that kind of thing. So I'm never going to hang out with Jim Gosherd. That's not the thing. There's a ton of grace and mercy that, are, that is in our lives. But uh, so past two weeks, we did haughty eyes, which is a proud, proud look, a lying tongue. And today, hands that shed innocent blood. Hands that shed innocent blood is our third thing that God hates. In the Hebrew Scriptures, there's a distinction between killing and between murder. There's actually two different words between killing someone and murdering someone. And there's different consequences in the, in the Torah, in the, uh, uh, in the book of Exodus, about accidental death, if you accidentally kill somebody, or if you intentionally slaughter someone, or what is justified killing. There are different laws that play in with all of those nuances. And I was telling others earlier that I think this would be a great forum topic for us to tackle sometime in the future? Like, what would, it, what would justify you killing somebody? Would you protecting, say, your spouse, or are you protecting your child uh, to kill somebody in order to protect, is that justified killing in your, in your mind? And I'm not saying it is or isn't. I'm just saying I think that if we would have a forum around that conversation, we would have a lot of different opinions about what that is and about violence, uh, but we're not doing that today. We're not gonna do that today. So in part three of our sermon series, the the good news of God's hate, we're going to look at this idea of shedding innocent blood. Um, The good news is that God is love, but that God does not love everything. So God is love, but God does not love everything. And because of his holiness and because of his goodness, God hates things. It's because he is love. It's because he is good. It is because um, he is holy that he hates certain things. And one of those things that he hates uh, are hands that shed innocent blood. And so with that picture of hands that shed innocent blood, we should obviously think about killing. uh, But we also want to, I want you to keep in your mind just the idea of taking life away from somebody. Taking life away from somebody. Not just physically, which is the go-to, but also emotionally and spiritually too. And we're going to see in our story today in the gospel how Jesus confronts a group of people. He confronts the experts that are in the empire, uh, these empire of experts. uh, They're part of the Judean people. uh, And he's confronting them. Why? He's confronting them because they are taking life away from the people that they are around. So uh, we need people in our lives besides ourselves. The way God has designed us as humanity and specifically as the church There's this common grace in humanity where we're called to trust and rely and work together with one another to some degree. And we are creatures with limitations, and so I can't be good at everything. And Isaac can't be good at everything. And Tanya's pretty close at being good at everything, but there's a couple things she's still working at. And that's kind of part of our design, that we're not just these little individual people. We are unique and we're individual, but there's a community around us. And so we have to rely on others or we should rely on others who spend the focus of their time studying for something or practicing or putting a lot of time into certain areas of life. I can trust myself to change the oil in my car. I cannot trust myself to change the transmission out of my car. That would be wrong. I can trust myself to if one of the girls gets a scrape or a a cut on their hand, I can clean it and I can uh, take care of it and put a band-aid on it. I can do that. But I can't trust myself and rely on myself to necessarily stitch up the back of my head. So there are certain things that we're good at, certain things that we're not good at. And so we rely on one another or we trust one another. Um, and these other things, we look for an expertise in other things. You would not want me to perform heart surgery on you. Okay? I might know one or two little things over here. I don't know how to open your body cavity up and go in there and do, you know, you take scissors, just like regular scissors and cut, I guess, or a pen and you stab it. I think that's how you do heart surgery. Um, You would not want me to do that. So you want to rely on somebody with expertise, an expert. But we're people who look for power and worth and even purpose in all the wrong places. And so this can twist the way that we use the things that we're good at right? We can promote ourselves to be proficient in something, and yet there's a lot more to consider in the realm of the medical realm or in the realm of theology. But we kind of puff ourselves up on knowledge, because that's what knowledge does. Or we can truly be competent in something, we can have great skill, and yet our competency and our character are divorced from one another. Where, oh, I'm really good at doing this one thing, I'm an expert in this, I'm I have expertise in this, I have skill in this, and yet my character is so lacking in that field that it ends up being misused and misapplied and ends up missing what really matters, and I end up hurting people more than actually providing some kind of goodness for them, because my competency and my character are not in line with one another. And then on the receiving end of things, it's easy for us to fall into the trap of a culture of experts. Because if there's all these experts, they can give us a temporary sense of security or of purpose in the way that they confidently talk. And yet we can feel that for a little bit. And yet, you know, a day, a week, a month, a year later, we're like, "Ah, that didn't work out the way that they said that that was going to work out. Their expert advice, they, they left some things out of there. There was something that they weren't saying. When Jesus came into the world, he did not proclaim the empire of the experts. He proclaimed the kingdom of God. So let's turn in our scripture and look how Jesus, Jesus pushes back against the empire of experts and how they take life away from each other. Uh, the gospel story we're going to be in today is in the gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 11, if you want to follow along. I will be reading from the NIV today. So Father God, as we open up uh, your word, we ask that you would speak to us, we ask that you would show us more about what kind of king that you are, Jesus, Um, that you would instruct us on the things that uh, agitate you, God, and that we would be settled in our spirit that it's because of your grace and your mercy that you go after these things. And so we thank you that you stand on truth and that you stand on righteousness and that you don't stand on that in any kind of corrupt way. Uh, We worship you for who you are, Jesus, and we want to hear your words. We pray this in your name. Amen. Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 45. Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 45. One of the experts in the law answered him. One of the experts in the law answered Jesus. Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. And so Jesus is uh, having a meal, making friends like he normally does with everybody. You know, very light conversation. Uh, And he's with a group of Pharisees. uh, And the Pharisees, as we know, are one of the main religious groups uh, of the time. They were a small group, but they had a lot of power and authority in the community. Um, They were politically conservative on one hand, but they were religiously more liberal because they didn't just stick to the text. They had a whole bunch of laws and a whole bunch of oral traditions that they added to it. So there was this interesting play where they were conservative on one hand and liberal on the other hand. Um, They were an interesting mix of that. They had uh, additional oral and written laws that were written for clarification. At least that was the hope, that it would bring clarification. Within that group, although it's a little bit mysterious, uh, there were experts in the law. These were, maybe in your translation it says lawyers, maybe in your translation it says scribes, And this was even a smaller group within the somehow connected group of the Pharisees. And they were likely detailed specialists. They were professionals in the law. They were these experts. And so Jesus has just delivered three woes to the Pharisees in the previous verses. And now he's turning his attention to the scribes, to the lawyers, to the experts of the law. So verse 46, Jesus replied to them, and you experts in the law woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them so the empire of the uh, experts contains this dominion of emotional burden the experts have had thousands of and thousands of legal opinions and perspectives and interpretations of the scripture again the thought was to bring clarity and yet what happened over time is that it became systematically impossible. It was practically impossible to do what they said because there was so much detail and how you're supposed to follow the law that there was contradictions all over the place. And so it stole the joy of doing God's will from the people. Instead of giving uh, the joy of obedience, and obedience isn't always joyful, following the Lord's will, what it actually ended up doing is it actually ended up burdening the people. And not only that, um, but uh, the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts talks about, or Apostle Peter talks about how the yoke that was on them and their forefathers, the people, they they could never fulfill that. And when we think about yoke, we should think about like the interpretation of the law. How do we actually take this word of God, the law, and how do we yoke ourselves to it? And different teachers had different yokes. Remember that for when we get to the kingdom of God. But the yoke of these scribes, the yoke of the experts, was something that burdened the people. And it was one of these things that when you always have everything figured out, like these experts did, you didn't need the active presence of God in your life. And then you can mistakenly think you're doing the will of God, because I'm just following the letter of the law, so I must be doing the right thing. And because I'm doing the right thing, I'm in God's will. And if I'm in God's will, do I really need God to talk to me and to show me what I really need to do? So it was like they were doing the will of God, they thought they were doing the will of God, and yet they were divorcing it from the personhood of God. And then we also see in this text that the experts would tell others to do stuff that they themselves wouldn't do, or possibly even couldn't do. So I can stand up here and I can preach to you something and tell you "You must do this, this, and this, and yet I am not going to do that. Why would I as an expert in the law do that? That's kind of ridiculous. I don't even know how to do that, but that's what I'm telling you to do. And then when there was this appropriate weight of being obedient to God, the experts didn't help them, didn't put the courage of God into the people in order for them to fulfill the will of God. They delivered knowledge, and then they vanished. This is all you need. Figure it out for yourselves. And so the empire of the experts was one of burden. Uh, The empire of the experts was also one of graves. So continuing in the text... Luke 11, verse 47. Woe to you! You build tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them. So then you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, and you built their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill, and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world. It's pretty weighty. From the blood of Abel, so Abel, Cain and Abel, Genesis 4, so the beginning of the Hebrew Scriptures, to the blood of Zechariah, which is probably in Second. Corinthians. Uh, uh, Chronicles, not Corinthians, second Chronicles, which in the way the, the Jewish people laid out their scripture, that was the last book of their canon. it wasn 't Malachi like it is in our scripture. So from the beginning of the scripture to the end of the scripture, uh, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. The Empire of the Experts, uh, their, their culture is, are, is filled with vain monuments. So there was a building of these really beautiful and elaborate tombs. There was the adorning of the memory of people that quote-unquote spoke the truth and that were from God, and yet they're not listening to their message now. So they built these fancy things to give these prophets from God some kind of credence, some kind of honor. And yet they're not listening to what those prophets of old have spoken to them even now. These experts currently did not necessarily kill those prophets. They did not shed the innocent blood of those prophets. And yet they also did not learn from the mistakes of the previous generation. And because they did not learn from the mistakes of the previous generation, the experts will repeat the same sins. And so when uh, uh, Jesus says here, in the wisdom of God, I'm going to send... He's sending more prophets and he's sending more apostles. And we know how a lot of them end up dying. That the word of God is still not being received. The apostle James, John the Baptist, Messiah Jesus were all killed with hands, with blood on the hands of people. They were martyred because they were proclaiming the kingdom of God. And this generation is an interesting phrase too because Jesus is talking about that specific generation that there is something uh, in time that's very specific that you have not learned from the the decades and hundreds and even thousands of years and yet the word of God is right before you and you're not going to receive it. And so Jesus is talking to this generation. But when we hear the word this generation, we should also think about the Exodus generation, the generation that God saved out of slavery from Egypt and what did he do? He brought them into a good place and then they started complaining. They were stubborn. They, they went when God told them to stay. They stayed when God told them to go. And so while this uh, generation is specifically part of the generation that Jesus is talking to, spiritually it also connects to all generations that are stubborn, to all generations that don't want to actually hear the word of God, but they just want to do what we want to do or we just want to hear the word of God that we like. The thank you for rescuing us, Jesus, but that whole lordship thing is a bit much, don't you think? And so every generation is also this generation. The expert generation of our time is a generation that knows everything and nothing at the same time. And that is for us today. Not just that generation, but for us today. Are we a stubborn generation? Jesus continues in verse 52 with the third woe woe to you experts in the law because you have taken away the key to knowledge you yourselves have not entered and you have hindered those who were entering so the empire of the experts is not a neutral governance sometimes we do things and it doesn't really it doesn't really affect people like we do something it's just kind of passive it's uh, it's something that it's watered down it's like okay that doesn't really affect me so who cares What Jesus is saying is that this empire of the experts, they were actually preventing people from going into the kingdom of God. Their promise is spiritual clarity, but their fruit is religious confusion. They make the simple chaotic and they make the complex mystery of God bland. The blessing of knowledge became the weight of ignorance in their hands. In all their rightness, they thought that they were right. We have all these rules. We have all these documents, we all have all this tradition, we have all this, and yet Jesus is saying, You're on the outside of the truth. You're on the outside of the kingdom of God. And not only that, you're preventing others from going into God's presence. One commentator uh, sums this up in two sentences very succinctly. He says that rules existed for everything except two things how to relate to God honestly. And how to relate to one another honestly. Self-importance replaced humility. And destruction replaced pursuit of God's will. Jesus wasn't okay with us. And then finally to finish out the chapter. Verse 53 and 54. When Jesus went outside. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Began to oppose him fiercely. And to besiege him with questions. Waiting to catch him in something that he might say. Dallas Willard, who is an author that I read, uh, he says that our failure to hear God's voice when we want to is due to the fact that when we do not want to, we do not want to hear it. So our failure to hear his voice when we want to is due to the fact that we do not, in general, want to hear it. We want it only when we think we need it. And we need it all the time, but we don't think we need it all the time. So then when we're actually like, God, speaks something, we're like, nah, that's not God talking. That's not God saying something. And that's what's going on at the end of this passage. That there is the religious leaders that are supposed to be tuned into God's heart and to God's mind. And now God's heart and God's mind is embodied before them. Yes, rebuking them, but because of his love. And they're not listening. And so they're trying to find a way. They're trying to question him. They're trying to besiege him. They're trying to catch him in his words. The experts are trying to downplay the king of the kingdom of God so that their empire can continue on. So let's contrast this quickly. So we've got the empire of the experts on one hand. We have the kingdom of God on the other hand. In contrast to the empire of burden, one of the more famous... Uh, or well-known sayings of Jesus in contrast to the empire of burden, is come to me, cornerstone, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Take the way I am interpreting the law, the way I am applying the truth of the law. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Imagine saying that to a group of people who are so burdened by hundreds of thousands of extra oral tradition or written laws that they don't know which way to turn. Yoke yourself to me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Freedom comes from Jesus's commands and his commands are not burdensome, as the scriptures say. Because everyone who is born of God, everyone who abandons their yoke in order to be yoked to Jesus has victory, and overcomes in God through the victory of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is not uh, a kingdom of burden. Two, the empire of the experts is a stubborn generation, but the kingdom of God has a stubborn father, or a better word to say that would be a steadfast father. A father who lovingly continues to send his word over and over and over and over and over and over again to us when we won't listen to it. He could have just said a long time ago, forget this. They keep killing my message. They keep killing my word. They keep, keep killing my, my prophets and my, and my priests and priestesses. They keep killing them. But our God is stubborn in the steadfast way that he is going to continue to come after his people and his creation. The experts point to vain monuments to showcase their righteousness, but the Father points to the empty tomb to showcase his love. The experts say that this thing over here is so important that I would kill for it. Jesus said this thing, God's creation is so important that I would die for it. And third, because of the empty tomb, Jesus has this unique proven expertise. Jesus is the door. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. And Jesus is the life. And while there are choices that every one of us in this room need to make and that I need to make as we're in the kingdom of God, they aren't uh, paralyzing because there's this landscape of grace that we're inheriting with the kingdom of God. Learn from me. You're not going to get it right right away. We see the saints of old that were directly in contact physically with Jesus. And did they get it right all the time? Absolutely not. There is security in the kingdom of God because of Christ's faithfulness and strength of humility. We are not relying on our intellect. We are not relying on our actions. And in reality, we're not ultimately even relying on our own hearts. But we're relying on the finished work of Jesus himself. The law of the experts taxes people, keeping them locked in the deceit of hell with no bandwidth to think beyond their failures. But the law of Christ opens up the door of heaven, strengthening its citizens to carry their own load, and as the book of Galatians said, to not only carry our load, but to carry one another's load in the kingdom. So Jesus denounces the laws of the experts. He says, woe to the empire of burden, woe to the empire of graves, woe to the empire of ignorance, woe to those things that kill emotional life, and physical life, and spiritual life, thereby oppressing the people and suppressing the glory of God to come through his creation. Uh, I don't think, has anybody here recently used the word woe? Past week? Again, there's all these biblical words that we talk about, but we don't necessarily use them. I've used woe like the surfer way, like woe, but not woe as in an an interjection. So woe is an interjection of grief and anger around the misery and hopelessness of something that needs to change. It is the opposite of Hosanna, which means save us. Woe to you experts of the law. The beauty of Jesus' woe and the goodness of God's hate is that he wants to ruin the things that ruin us. And he's looking to do so without killing us for clinging so tightly to idols and to our fears and to control. Cornerstone, we are not innocent, but we are loved. And where death might indeed be just for us, God uses his hands to continually rescue us and to form us because he is good and he is holy and he is true. And so there is hope in Christ for the Pharisee that might be in your heart or the expert, the delusional expert that might be in in your mind. Because we see later specifically sometime during the gospel stories, but usually after the resurrection, that there were scribes and that there were Pharisees that followed Jesus. There were those that broke from their rut of tradition, and they trusted in Christ. They started to learn that legalism is not the same as obedience, nor is lawlessness the same as freedom. And one of my life verses, I mean, I've been kind of like dogging on the scribes, but there, there's also redemptive parts that Jesus speaks about. One of my life verses, if that's even still a thing anymore, um, one of the verses I come back to when I try to remember what God has called me to or who I am in Christ is from Matthew 13, and it has to do with being a scribe. It says, Every scribe who becomes a disciple, so every scribe that becomes a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like an owner of a home who brings from its storehouse new treasures of truth, As well as old. And I love that picture of that there is this storehouse in God's kingdom, and that as a scribe in his kingdom, that there's these things that are both new and old to, to to bring out of the storehouse and that to put together and to explore the beauty of God and how to love him more and how to love one another more and to how to know his character more. So cornerstone, may we remember our King Jesus, who shed his innocent blood for us as a sacrifice to cleanse us, to wash off the blood on our own hands from sin, and to also transform us. In each of our unique ways, may we as kingdom scribes be writing living letters of grace in our lives. May you have hands that do not etch death and hypocrisy, like the empire of the experts, but may you have hands, cornerstone, kingdom hands that engrave devotion and hope into the world around you. Amen and amen. Uh, We have a few more minutes, uh, as has been our uh, rhythm for the past couple weeks. If you are a covenant member here at Cornerstone, I would like to ask uh, a covenant member uh, to close us in a word of prayer before we go get our kids and before we regather uh, in a posture of worship and song and sacrament. So is there a covenant member that would like to close our time in prayer? Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we appreciate your presence with us. And God, we appreciate your words and your love uh, in our lives. And Father, as we go uh, forward from this day, God, that we could, uh, we could heed your warnings. We could listen for your word. We could seek you in places that we, we don't always want to go to. Um, Father, give us... Give us the strength to seek you. Give us the strength to, to call upon your name, uh, even when we don't want to. Uh, give us the authority to speak of uh, your kingdom to those around us. Uh, Father, I pray that you would continue to watch over us and make us stronger, make us better in you. Um, and we thank you for your grace and mercy in our life. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.